Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News political director Rick Klein. And I'm ABC's senior congressional correspondent Mary Bruce. And Mary, I'm going to go out on a huge limb here and say that this is the biggest, best, most productive infrastructure week yet. (laughs) What do you think? So my argument, Mary, is that Nothing actually got built, but something really big just got blown up. And that is the possibility of any legislative movement under divided control of Washington, that that is now dead, dead, dead. What do you think? All that nice talk of bipartisanship coming together to get something done uh, now just went straight out the window. Yeah, it did. And, and today was supposed to be a day where things were moving, well, to, to borrow a metaphor that we'll explain in a moment, on two tracks. You had uh, a lot of pressure on House Democrats, a building pressure that we're going to cover on Nancy Pelosi and leadership in particular to pull the trigger on impeachment, to finally do the I word. We've had a number of prominent Democrats come out just in the last few days and say that uh, the, the, the situation has changed. They feel like the obstruction has gotten to the point where uh, they have to seriously talk about beginning uh, impeachment proceedings. And yet the glimmer of hope around infrastructure with the president summoning the top Democratic leaders to the White House to have this big meeting on infrastructure. And they arrived. Uh, We are told they were made to wait for a bit. The president spoke for a few minutes and then left the room and then headed out into the Rose Garden where he had this to say. I've said from the beginning, right from the beginning, that you probably can't go down two tracks. You can go down the investigation track, and you can go down the investment track or the track of let's get things done for the American people. I love the American people. So, Mary, uh, the president coming out and saying there is no deal to be had and the only track is going to be the investigations track until or unless they drop the investigation. So naturally, the Democrats said, "Uh, you win, Mr. President, right? Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're dropping everything and we're just going to do infrastructure. No more investigations. Look, (laughs) never going to happen. Um, We knew this was kind of coming. Uh, It didn't seem likely that they were ever really going to get an infrastructure deal done uh, for, for many various reasons. But what is so interesting about the way this day played out, and it was a busy one, um, is the way that Speaker Pelosi seemed to play all of this out, right? She started this morning goading the president, essentially. She casually dropped by the cameras and said that he was uh, engaging in a cover-up by stonewalling all of the Democrats' investigations. Then, of course, she goes over to the White House prepared to have this conversation uh, theoretically on infrastructure. But, man, how do you have a conversation and negotiate something when the president and Democrats are in this escalating war over these investigations. But look, the president was prepared, too. It seemed that he was already bracing for a showdown as well, because Rick, of course, when we saw him come out to the Rose Garden, he was standing there with those signs that read, you know, no collusion, no obstruction, already printed out and ready to go. So both sides came to this meeting ready to play. They were bracing for a showdown, uh, it seems. And then, of course, we had Democrats come back up here to the Hill, you know, and, and sort of, you know, shake their fingers at the president and say, you know, try to change the conversation. What I think is so interesting is that this day that started off uh, uh, with this sort of political conversation about this brewing revolt within the Democratic Party over impeachment has now shifted completely. The conversation is now about the president's behavior, uh, about his sort of refusal to play ball on the issues. Nancy Pelosi is a master uh, political, you know, strategist. And in many ways, we have seen this before where she tries to, you know, 
to play the president. And in this case, it seems like, you know, she set him up and he took some of her bait a little bit. And I think listening to what she said just moments after returning from the White House empty handed, you know, the president went out and and chastised Democrats for playing politics around all these things and basically said, look, you wanted these things. You're not going to get them anymore. You're not going to get infrastructure because of what you're doing. Listen to how Nancy Pelosi responded at that news conference that I know, Mary, you were at just a short while ago. For some reason, maybe it was lack of confidence on his part that he really couldn't come match the greatness of the challenge that we have. Uh, didn't wasn't really uh, respectful of the reason of the Congress and the White House working together. He just took a pass, and it just makes me wonder why why he did that. In any event, I pray for the President of the United States. And I pray for the United States of America. Couldn't match the greatness. I think, Mary, you're on to something with how Nancy Pelosi is playing Donald Trump in this moment. She's taking a uh, that that's a not so subtle dig at the president's ego there. Right. Sort of suggesting that he couldn't even get it done if he tried. Um but no one was under any you know, illusion that they were on the, the precipice of a big infrastructure deal here. Look, infrastructure is one of these issues where there, it's one of the rare issues where there is some bipartisan agreement. But it's not like this thing was, was you know, way far down the road. There was a lot of work that was going to have to be done if they were going to get anything done on infrastructure. And the president had made very clear, you recall, even the day after the midterms, the president came out and said very clearly to Democrats that if they were going to come after him, that he was not going to play ball with them legislatively that they weren't going to be able to work together on the big issues at the same time if they were investigating him. And that's what they're doing. They've made very clear that that is their priority here. Democrats are going after the president. And the president is now saying if that's the case, then, you know, then then case closed. We're not going to be able to make any legislative, uh, you know, headway. Is the president coming out and saying if you want an infrastructure deal, then you have to drop the investigations going to make Nancy Pelosi change her tune? No way. There is no way the Democrats are now all of a sudden going to drop their investigations and their oversight of this president because he's threatening not to give them an infrastructure deal unless they do. This is not going to change the way Democrats are operating. But what it does do is escalate this already you know, boiling point that we were reaching in this war between the president and congressional Democrats uh, over the path forward here and over these investigations. And of course, this is all happening, you know, as we get closer and closer to a presidential election. Oh, yeah, of course that. And, and, and we should be clear here. Is there an infrastructure necessity, even a crisis in this country? Yes. Do Democrats want to spend spend a whole, a whole boatload of federal money to fix the nation's crumbling roads and bridges? Yes, very much so. Would they do that, though, at the cost of... A, doing business with this White House at all, and B, on the condition now the president has set that they drop everything else, that was never going to happen. And I wonder if President Trump hasn't done Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats a huge favor here. One, in taking away any incentive or any illusion that there could be legislative cooperation in the run-up to an election. And two, by uniting the Democrats around what they're behind, mm-hmm. which is real oversight, real scrutiny of this president. The question today suddenly suddenly isn't so much about impeachment. as It's back to the square issues of oversight and, and what, it, what amounts to a threat by the president that if, uh, if, you, can't, if you can't come to, to play on some other things, I'm taking my ball and going home. 
Yeah, and Pelosi and Democrats, I mean, they're well aware of that. They're trying to shift that conversation, right, away from what we've been talking about for the last 24, 48 hours, which is this question of impeachment and the dozens of Democrats now who are saying it's time to go in that direction. And instead, you're back to talking about how this president is blocking Democrats uh, and the issues. Look, Democrats are trying. They want desperately to be focused on a conversation about their agenda. And so they're spinning this as saying, well, look, we were happy to talk about infrastructure, but the president walked out of the room. The president is saying, look, I want to talk about the issues, too, and I'm willing to play ball there, but only if you guys drop these investigations, because as far as Republicans and the White House are concerned, this is case closed and Democrats need to just move on. Yeah. And and, and we should we should point out the context for all of this is the growing uh, cries among Democratic elected officials and the Democratic base to just go there already when it comes to impeachment. No more being cute around it. They're saying start the inquiry. And that's the pressure that Speaker Pelosi continues to be under. And when the dust fades from uh, this implosion of around infrastructure, uh, there will continue to be that pressure. And, and Mary, some, it feels to me like something, a few significant things happened in the last couple of days. First, you had a first Republican House member come out in favor of impeachment o- over the weekend. Uh, Justin Amash, congressman from Michigan, um, doesn't always toe the party line, but definitely a conservative, a member of the Freedom Caucus, a, a, a bit of, a, of an outsider or of a loner of types, more libertarian leaning. But he came out and said, there, there is enough to impeach the president, begin impeachment proceedings in his view. Nancy Pelosi said it has to be bipartisan. One counts as bipartisan if we know Washington's rules. Uh, not quite. Not quite. Well, not, not quite. for Nancy not Pelosi. Not not but I think I think more significant than that is the, the decision uh, to, to stonewall around Don McGahn. That seemed to, to, to set off a whole lot of Democrats who said, you know what, if we're not going to get any oversight, we are not going to be able to do anything around around this president, around this presidency. I found it significant when Congressman David Cicilline, a Democrat from Rhode Island, who, as you know, is a member of House leadership, uh, broke now with leadership and said it is time to go there when it comes to impeachment. Take a listen. Impeachment is a question that we have to, a decision we have to make based on the facts and the evidence. As the Speaker has said, and I agree with this, completely. We should never proceed with impeachment for political reasons. We should never avoid impeachment for political reasons. I think the political consequences are irrelevant, that we have to do what's right for the country and have to do what's, we have to do what the facts require us to do, period. And you started to see members of Congress like Mark Pocan from the Progressive Caucus, like Diana DeGette, who is a, a longtime uh, member of Congress from Colorado, not a, not a newbie here on, on Capitol Hill, come out and say it's time to go there when it comes to impeachment. How was Nancy Pelosi handling that inside her own her own caucus in the last couple of days? Well, it, it, she's stuck in some ways, right? Because you do have these growing calls and you have the, you know these incidents like this awkward empty chair at that hearing where McGahn was supposed to show up. And while you know Pelosi and other Democratic leaders will point out that Justin Amash is hardly a supporter of the president's, you know, he's he's you're, I don't think you're going to see him starting you know a wave of Republicans coming out and saying that the president should suddenly be impeached. But those who support impeachment say, look, you now even have a Republican saying that that they should be considering this, the the trouble for Nancy Pelosi here is that it's not as if this is going to change, right? You are going to have a lot more empty chairs up here as Democrats continue to to, to issue these subpoenas, to call for members uh, of the Trump's inner circle to come up and testify. And as the president has made very clear that he's going to block them at every twist and turn. The question is, how did what do Democrats do? And Nancy Pelosi has been urging Democrats. We saw this morning in their closed door meeting, she's urging them to stay the course, to follow the facts. You'll hear that phrase a lot. Follow the facts and let this play out. Democrats have also been seeing some success, right? They had a victory this week in the courts when a federal judge uh, upheld their subpoena. 
now the president's accountant has to hand over eight years of his financial records. And so you have Democratic leaders saying, look, this is working. You just have to stick with us. Give this time. How much time are you going to give? Um, and, and as you continue to have more empty chairs, more you know blocks, uh, blocking from the president, how long do they give this? Um, and I've talked to some top Democratic aides and, and asking them that exact question. And they feel that, you know, they're not ruling out impeachment. They're not saying they're not going to do it. They're just saying they're not there yet. And so as you see more and more Democrats come out, if there is sort of a bigger wave, because right now it is two dozen, but it's only two dozen, right? You have, right. You have over 200 Democrats here. Um, and they sort of argue that, that look, if, if and when you do have a critical mass of Democrats, it's likely that once you reach that point, well, then leadership might be on board as well. Yeah. And, and of course, the key in that two dozen or is who it isn't there. And it isn't Nancy Pelosi. And as, as long as she's not there, it really doesn't matter what those two dozen think. She does have effective control still of, of this of, of her caucus. And here's the line, Mary, that, that set off President Trump. And you wonder how much Nancy Pelosi knew she was doing with this line, if this was more intended for her own members or for the president. But take a listen. We do believe that it's important for the, the, to follow the facts. Uh, we believe that no one is above the law, including the president of the United States. And we believe that the president of the United States is engaged in a cover up. That's a, that's a strong charge. Um, new a, a new accusation from Nancy Pelosi, to my mind, to, to go that directly and say that that uh, that she that, that he that the president is engaged in a cover up. It of course has shades of Watergate, and it's not what the president used as a predicate to go out just a few minutes later and say the whole deal is off. Yeah, and on any other day, I would say that that was a, an effort for her to try and appease those members who are calling for impeachment, right? We've we've heard her say that this is a constitutional crisis. Now her coming out and saying it's a cover-up. I think it's a way of her giving a nod to those concerns. But when she says it just as she's about to walk out the door to go to the White House, it feels more like, and, and I, I'm not to say that she isn't also, you know, that that isn't directly also aimed at, at her own members, but that's also a jab at the president. Oh, that is also her sort of, you know, poking the bear as she's going to, to have this face-to-face meeting, knowing that that's, you know, how can she not know that that's going to get under his skin? And clearly it did. And there's a new new track, so to speak, that, that is emerging as a potential avenue for House Democrats that I think is intriguing. And we're going to talk about it in a minute with Dan Abrams, our ABC News legal analyst. But the idea is that, that's emerging is that there's a distinction between uh, starting an impeachment inquiry or impeachment proceedings even versus filing articles of, of impeachment, voting to actually impeach. This is Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who, who this week reiterated her call for impeachment, but beginning to describe it a little bit differently. A lot of people don't know what that process means in the House. Um, and so impeachment could mean the actual filing of the articles of impeachment. Impeachment could could also uh, refer to the hearings that begin in the process uh, to lead to that to lead to that end, to lead to the filing. And Mary, as you know, the, the legal theory behind this is that it, it empowers Congress in its fight that is already in the courts in pursuing information, documents, witnesses, if it is part of an official impeachment uh, proceeding uh, versus a, a regular congressional inquiry. And um, I don't know that it's been tested directly, but the idea is that makes it a little stronger. The other side of it, though, is, Mary, once you go there, once you, once you use the I word in that formal capacity, you're all in. Yeah, politically, I don't know if there's a big distinction uh, in what voters see versus let's begin an impeachment proceeding and actually moving to, to a vote on impeachment. 
practically there is a big difference. And you'll hear Democrats like Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez say that they want to start this process because they think it will help them get access to this information that they've been seeking quicker, right? Instead of letting it play out in the courts, once you actually, and Dan will, will help us understand this, but once you uh, take those steps to move towards impeachment, it does in some ways empower them to get more information, or that's what Democrats hope, that they'll then be able to get access to some of this. Politically, though, once people hear the I word, you know, you're in that debate and it's you can't put that back in the box. Right. And that's really tricky. And that's what Democrats are struggling with, because while they feel they have to hold this president accountable, while they want to continue these investigations, they are well aware that in any impeachment debate is going to drown out everything else. It's going to overshadow their agenda, what agenda is left to be acted upon. And they're, you know, clearly what we saw this morning in that meeting, no one is under, you know, any illusion that they're all of a sudden going to be you know, getting a lot done with this White House. But Democrats still can move forward and vote uh, in the House on different issues. They can try and, you know, raise the, the the profile of some of their agenda items. And that's important as they head into the presidential election. Democrats want to be talking about health care, about education, about the economy, the environment. And is that conversation going to be completely overshadowed by any impeachment debate? Probably. And that's yeah. why I think Democrats are trying to have it both ways. But man, it is really hard to, to walk that fine line. Yeah. And it gets to uh, where, you know, we judge today that Nancy Pelosi seems to be playing the president, that the president knows this game really well too. And he is yeah. not he is not a master strategist, but he knows the game and he knows the tactics. And he knows that going out there and and blowing up talk about of, of any infrastructure deal or any legislative movement focuses things on democratic obstructionism, as he will as he will phrase it, and say, look, I'm getting these things done. And you saw shades of that in the Rose Garden today, him crowing again about the economy, about the accomplishments under his White House, talking about those things. It fires up his base and it, it engages in this fight that he wants to have. He may be the only person that wants President Trump impeached more than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and those two dozen Democrats is President Trump himself. Absolutely. And that's why, you know, he is trying to to, to say he's not going to give them any information. He's going to, you know, give this sort of blanket refusal to play ball on any of these requests uh, as they investigate here because he is, I think, trying to push them towards impeachment because politically there is a strong argument that that would be good for the president because then he can go out and go out and run against that. You know, he, he's got that bumper sticker down. No collusion, no obstruction. And for him to go out and make that argument while Democrats are wrapped up in impeachment proceedings, the president feels that that's a could be a winning strategy. Uh, and there's an argument to be made for that. So and that's why I think you've heard Speaker Pelosi say just that, that she thinks the president's trying to goad them into impeachment and that they need to be careful not to play into that hand. Uh, Democrats are in a jam here. Uh, and Speaker Pelosi knows that. But the president, you know, there's a, a smart strategy for him to be be making here as well. And, and he's going all in. You know, he's, he is saying, I'm not going to play ball at all. And if you want to impeach me, go ahead and impeach me. Well, it is a, it is a fascinating, fast-moving developments today. Thank thank you, Mary, for sitting still for long enough to, to, to <laughs> download all of this. It is a wacky, wild Wednesday here in Washington. Um, we are going to take a quick break right here. When we're back, we're going to be joined by ABC News legal analyst Dan Abrams, who is, uh, in addition to being one of the smartest uh, political and legal minds around, also the author of a new book, that has to do with a certain ex-president on trial for libel. You'll want to listen to this. Dan Abrams after the break. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We're pleased to be joined on the podcast by Dan Abrams, our ABC News uh, legal analyst and the author of a brand new book, Theodore Roosevelt for the Defense, The Courtroom Battle to Save His Legacy. Timely 
uh, in in its own way in this time of presidential name calling and uh, and accountability uh, for uh, for presidents and in this case an ex president and, and we'll get to all that Dan but I, I want to start with the hot topic now impeachment buzz is is sort of boiling over right now and it's a political decision for for House Democrats but from a legal perspective what does impeachment get Democrats that they cannot do now through the the normal routes of accountability, the things that they're trying to do now. So so let's talk about what they really mean when they talk about impeachment right now. Uh, What they're really talking about is a quote unquote impeachment inquiry. Um, You know, I'm not really sure how different that is from oversight hearings, uh, except that you are now in an official proceeding. Um, That means that on some of the legal arguments in forcing people to testify and getting documents, the fact that there's an official proceeding makes the the argument from a legal perspective slightly stronger. And I say slightly because Congress has a very good argument on most of the cases, in most of the instances where they're either seeking information or seeking testimony, they've probably got the winning argument. And so... You know, you add a little bit to that by calling it an impeachment inquiry. But what what they're not really talking about yet is this idea of impeaching the president. Um, it just becomes a question of what do you call it? What do you call these proceedings? What do you call these hearings? And as you point out, that has enormous political ramifications and I would say um, slight legal implications. So, yeah, I mean, the politics of it, we know that the president is already warning that, that his all his his political enemies want to do is impeach him, and they're trying to undo the election. We get that. But I, I explain this, though, in terms of what it means legally, because right now we already have court battles begun over, uh, over producing documents, pr- potentially producing witnesses. Uh, we've got subpoena fights happening that will play themselves out in courts. If if you call it an impeachment inquiry rather than a congressional investigation, what does that do? It's still it's still going to have to wake, work its way through courts, and it's not like we'd expect the White House suddenly says, "Okay, you got us on this argument. Here's everything you need." Correct. It, it just makes it so that you don't have to focus so much on the legislative purpose. So you keep hearing in response to these various requests, "Well, there's no legitimate legislative purpose for Congress to be requesting this information." Once there's an impeachment uh, on the table, once this is a quote-unquote impeachment inquiry, you don't have to get into anymore, well, you know, we're doing it to make sure that the tax system and we're considering legislation on this and in our oversight role, it's that. And so, you know, there are different explanations for all the stuff that they've been requesting in connection with the subpoenas. Once you say there's an impeachment inquiry, that argument uh, it becomes somewhat moot from the Trump team to say, well, there's no legislative purpose. Well, if there's an impeachment inquiry, that is the legislative purpose. And so so it does help them in that sense, except that courts are going to grant pretty wide deference to Congress generally when it comes to legislative purpose, which is why I say that, yes, it helps them slightly as a legal matter, but it's not a game changer. I want to I want to figure out if if we can for a moment what the what the legal and and constitutional history is on this because as you know you're a student of history you're a student of the presidency uh, impeachment has not been invoked a whole lot of times throughout our history uh, is it was it designed by the founders or has it been used in the past as a fact finding mission as opposed to being used as an effort 
to end or oust a president. It shouldn't be. I don't think it should be used as a fact-finding mission. I mean, but isn't that what we're talking about here? Well, I mean, by calling it an, an inquiry, but not, but, right. uh, but or a proceeding, but not actually introducing articles of impeachment or voting on articles of impeachment, aren't they? Aren't they fishing in a sense? Um, look, uh, whether they're fishing or they're not, I agree with you that 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 the more honest way to characterize it is not to say that this is actually about impeachment. It's just a stronger way to force the hand of the president and and his team. So it, if, if the problem is we're not going to get intellectual honesty. The reason I'm pausing is we're not going to get intellectual honesty right. here about what the real goals are. Is it fact-finding? Is it not? As you know, grand juries can be used um, to gather facts and gather information. So you have the power of the subpoena. Um, so, you know, it's not that unusual in the legal context to say we're going to use, for example, a grand jury to investigate something so that we can have subpoena power. But Congress has subpoena power already. It's just been uh, it's been tough to enforce those subpoenas. So 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 it's a long way of saying it would be unprecedented to sort of dip your toe in the way Congress is talking about doing it here. They're talking about. And this is why the first time I heard the word impeachment inquiry, I didn't even know what it was. I'm like, an impeachment inquiry? You mean starting an impeachment proceeding? No, 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 no. We're just going to be asking questions Mm -hmm. connected to impeachment. And it's like, well, wait a second. You mean you're not saying you're going to impeach. You're saying you're going to look into whether you should impeach, which, which then gets back to the same question as congressional oversight, which is, when you engage in oversight and you find information, then you make a decision. So, you know, there is definitely an argument that that impeachment inquiry becomes a sort of squirrely term for, you know, doing the same thing that they're doing now with a little more bite. How, what, you, you've read the Mueller report. You've yeah. thought about, you've, you've talked to people about the Mueller report. Do you view Bob Mueller's work as intending, do you, do you believe that the that the Mueller, the Mueller team and Mueller himself intended for that to be the final word? Or were they, in your view, handing this off to Congress, whether through impeachment inquiries or other avenues, looking for more scrutiny or more investigation? I, I think it's a little of, of both, which is I think that they were intending to hand it off, but without making a judgment on whether that should lead to impeachment inquiry. Um, or an impeachment proceeding. I, I think it's clear from the Mueller report that Mueller thought that if the president hadn't been a sitting president, that there were indictable crimes on obstruction of justice. Um, and the question of, is that enough to impeach? I think he is intentionally not weighing in on that in any way, shape, or form. So, if you, I think, I think to 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 read the Mueller report is to and to read it honestly is to walk away from it saying, okay, um, it's clear Mueller thinks that there were certain crimes committed with obstruction of justice, particularly on the Don McGahn stuff, um, maybe on the Sessions stuff too, um, and that he's basically saying, here's what we found, here's why we didn't indict, here's why I'm not even calling it a crime. I'm handing this off. What he was not doing was, quote unquote, punting to Barr so that Barr could draw a conclusion about it. That, right. that to me, is just not what Mueller was doing. Mm-hmm. So, so in some way, he would be looking for Congress to pick up the ball. <sighs> you know, 
I, I don't think looking for is even fair. I, I think he was handing it off to Congress and the public to say, here's what we found. Mm-hmm. Do with it what you will. And and I guess that's going to work its it, it, its its well, own way through. Well, now. and and that's and it's it's that very ambiguity that <laughs> that has created this difficulty. Mm-hmm. It's it's the fact that Mueller didn't say and therefore or and from here, um, it, neither of those are there. And so now there's this debate about well, what should happen and. And I think that in the early days, people said, well, he was punting to to Barr. And I kept pushing back on it, saying there's no indication that he's punting to Barr. That Barr, I mean, remember that as the attorney general, the reason you hire, the reason you retain a special counsel is so the attorney general doesn't have to make a decision about his boss. Mm -hmm. You go outside, and it's not an independent counsel, it is different, but you are still seeking someone from the outside to prepare answers to the questions that we don't want the attorney general answering about his boss. So Mueller hands this off to Barr, and then Barr does just that, which is to provide answers about his boss. And Barr gave an interview this week where he talked about his own actions in um, defending the president and cast it as a defense of the presidency itself, really, and talking about how he view he just wants to make sure that Congress isn't uh, asserting so much authority that the presidency becomes an errand boy for Congress. Do, do you, do, does that hold water from your reading of how Barr has handled himself in this uh, in the in the wake of the Mueller report and defending the president and and also now with the Department of Justice uh, doing a whole lot to to help buttress the arguments around uh, uh, not producing documents, not producing witnesses. Y- yes and no. Um, yes, in the sense that I believe that William Barr um, feels strongly about executive power and feels strongly that, in essence, um, you know, that there should be a very strong executive. President should have enormous autonomy, more than, than, than many people think, in terms of how to do what he does. On the other hand, I think that for him to come out and say, you know, things, draw conclusions about what the report says, like, for example, you know, this means no collusion. That's not a legal Mm -hmm. explanation. There was no conspiracy. Collusion isn't even a legal term. And so for him to say that's what this means says to me, wow. He's, he's going all in for the president here. And, and I don't mean for the presidency. So, so it's a little bit of both. Um, and, and I think that, that it is important to distinguish between the two. Because I do believe that, that you know, it is an honest position to take. You don't have to agree with it. To say that there should be enormous power in the executive and mm-hmm. that Congress tries to, you know, Theodore Roosevelt felt very strongly about the power of the executive, got very frustrated with Congress. Um, and, you know, at one point his attorney general um, stepped down in part because Roosevelt, he thought, had become almost autocratic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so my point is just that, you know, this isn't a case of sort of first impression. The, my bigger problem with what Barr did is, is not um, 
you know, sort of the it, it's it's the words that he used in summarizing what the Mueller report meant and suggesting that because Mueller didn't draw a, a conclusion that therefore it means it is left to him. And I don't think that there's anything to indicate that that was the case. So, Dan, let's talk about TR and actually words and the power of words. And in your book, Theodore Roosevelt for the Defense, look, when I read history, when I study history, I'm always looking for, I think a lot of people do, look for parallels to, to the present day. Mm-hmm. But when I see, when I read about this, an incident that I did not know about, and I've, I've read about TR quite a bit over the years, but I didn't know much detail around this, around this, this lawsuit that you take us through from 1915, when the former president of the United States is, is taken to court over... Uh, by, by a New York State party boss who he had called. What, what, what was the offense? What did he call the guy? Called him corrupt. Corrupt. So um, <laughs> obnoxious, right? Yeah. An obnoxious type at one point? Well, cor- corrupt was, the, corrupt was the, 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 the main subject of the lawsuit. Was... So, on, the, on the Trump scale, that's like a one and a half on a scale of oh, one to yeah. ten of name calling. But so, so what, this was a libel suit where TR, as a former president, is, uh, is himself on trial. What did this mean at the time that you had a former president being held to account for his words? This was the biggest story of the day. I mean, you have a, a country that is slowly inching towards World War I, and you have the libel trial of Theodore Roosevelt on the front pages of every newspaper in America. Um, it was a six-week trial. And because Roosevelt himself testified for eight days, it made it that much more um, interesting, scandalous. Um, but remember, you know, when we look back at presidents, particularly iconic ones, typically we're looking back at speeches that they made or things that they wrote. Having someone on cross-examination <laughs> from a lawyer that does not like him um, and wants to shame and embarrass him and tarnish his legacy... It's fascinating stuff to read through. I mean, the transcript of the six-week trial is over 3,000 pages. Um, And we sort of boil it down and tell the story around uh, that trial. But there's no question there are comparisons to today. I mean, look, the fundamental questions that they were discussing and debating were over money in politics and corruption in politics and the influence of, of money. And these are still issues, obviously, that we discuss every day in our in our political system. And for Roosevelt himself, I mean, he he was he was obviously an ex president. He was also an enormous celebrity at the time, right? Uh, right, oh, Dan. I mean, absolutely, he was one of the b- best known people in in the in the world. Um, you know, whether he was better known than Woodrow Wilson, who was the current president, or not, uh, is a close call. But he was one of the two best known Americans. He had served almost two terms um, as president. I say almost because he served most of his first term after William McKinley was shot, and he took over, and then he was elected to a second term, um, and then ran again in 1912 and got more votes than the Republican candidate, William Howard Taft, who he had split off from. And the two, two effectively Republican candidates split the vote, and as a result, Wilson won. But my point is that he was in the public eye. I mean, people wanted to know what Roosevelt thought. And by the way, in connection with World War I, there were incidents that happened during the trial 
the Lusitania was sunk. And so Mm. the question was, what should be the reaction to the Germans? And the lawyers for Teddy Roosevelt were very concerned that his criticism of the Germans could alienate three German-American jurors. Because back then, German-Americans very much um, sided with, tended to side with the Germans. There was much more of a bond with Germany um, leading up to World War I. And so there was a real concern that he could be alienating those, those jurors with comments. So this was a case where it was the intersection of the former president and um, a jury and incredibly weighty issues that were going on in the world. And just everyone was watching this case that has somehow become a footnote to history. And at the time, Roosevelt, uh, another presidential run was even a possibility. I mean, Roosevelt would actually die just a few years later. But at the time, there was still talk about another political comeback. How important was this to Roosevelt personally, uh, that, that, that he be exonerated over, over, this, uh, over this highly unusual charge that he faced in the first place? This was enormously important to him. And it wasn't because of the money. It was enormously important to him because what the plaintiff was saying was, you, Roosevelt, were no better than the people you're accusing. And Roosevelt took his integrity very seriously. Mm. It was a defining trait for him his honesty, and his integrity. And the notion that the plaintiff was accusing him of being, in effect, corrupt as well um, was infuriating and um, something that weighed on him. So, you know, there were times, remember, he's in Syracuse, New York for this. He doesn't live in Syracuse. He doesn't live anywhere near Syracuse. He he lives in Long Island. Um, You know, it's a five-hour train ride. Uh, maybe more. It's not easy to get to even today. Exactly. Um, so he had to go back and forth. I mean, he, he st- and, and there were times when he would want to leave for the weekend, but there would be a bad legal ruling and he would stay mm. to deal with his lawyers. It's the former president of the United States. Um, so it was just an astonishing case and spectacle um, inside that courtroom that, uh, that was covered throughout the country. And it's a, f- a fascinating window into history. And, and as I say, it's, it does seem resonant uh, today with this litigious president <laughs> who well, and, and look, calls people names. Well, and, and, we could, and look, Donald Trump's already been sued, right? Yeah, so yeah. we could absolutely see Donald Trump on the witness stand in some way, shape, or form. Could be during his presidency, could be after his presidency. Um, you know, I don't see how he's going to be able to completely avoid it unless he settles all of the cases uh, that have been brought. I mean, some of them would be dismissed, and but there are going to be certain ones where he's either going to have to make a decision to settle it or he'll have to testify. It is a, a fascinating read and a fascinating slice of history. Dan Abrams, the book is Theodore Roosevelt for the Defense, The Courtroom Battle to Save His Legacy. Dan, thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Rick. All right, that does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. For Mary Bruce and John Carl, I am Rick Klein. Thanks to our entire team. Avery Miller, Angie Yak, and the man behind the controls, Trevor Hastings. We'll be back next time with another edition of Powerhouse Politics.